kindergarten um a, 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 you know an elementary student made the the slides because uh, my fonts are not like working for some reason but that's okay because we trust in God's sovereignty all right okay so i hope you had a fruitful time with your discipleship groups studying romans 9 to 11 um, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless the teaching of his word. Oh Lord, you are the potter and we are the clay. We are dust. May you mold our hearts to receive your word with faith and obedience. Please bless the teaching of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. We are now in Romans 11. And we are also at a remarkable time in history. The place of Israel as a people in the Middle East is a global issue with worldwide significance. Both today, as you all what's happening right now there, and also for the future. Even though the nation of Israel has rejected Christ and his gospel, our passage in Romans 11 20, verses 25 to 36 clearly reveals that God still has a plan for them. And this is not talking about the current state of Israel, but it's about the future state of Israel. Because God has never forgotten his promise to them. And for us to appreciate this, we have to look at Israel through the lens of the gospel. From God's perspective, from God's word. As a matter of fact, when you read the Bible, there is a major theme or one of the major themes is Israel. From Genesis, right? Genesis 12, the call of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob's name was renamed to Israel. And we know about God's people being delivered from Egypt in Exodus and Israel is recurring like all throughout Scripture up to the prophets, even in the New Testament, in the Gospels. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ came from a Jewish family. Even up to Revelation in the last days, God has a focus on Israel. And even in the epistles, like our epistle uh, right now in Romans. Now, Romans is the farthest letter from Israel or Jerusalem. This means that there were many Gentile believers. AV team, can I have my next? I just click next. Thank you. Um, this means that there were, many, there were many Gentile believers in the early church of uh, Rome. And Paul dedicated three chapters from chapters 9 to 11. And think about that. That's like, 20% of, um, of the book of Romans, Paul's Gentile readers needed to know that God is not swayed by human opinion or by man's culture. God is not limited by man's opinion. You see, God is not done with Israel. Paul gives the context of the gospel in relation to the Jewish nation. But how does Paul do that? Well, Paul gives a high and wide view of God's plan for uh, God's plan for salvation for his people. Can I have the next slide, please? 
Paul highlights the attributes of God. And this is God's attribute, his sovereignty and his faithfulness to his word. Paul highlights God's sovereignty and his faithfulness to his word. Romans chapter 9 verse 21 states that God is the sovereign potter and we are the clay. We are just dust. And in Romans 10, we see the fulfillment of his promise of salvation for those who believe in him. He is faithful to his promise. No message in scripture is clearer or repeated more often than the message that God can be trusted. God can be trusted. His word and his promise are absolutely trustworthy. Whatever God says is true, and whatever he promises comes to pass. Whatever God says is true, and whatever he promises come to pass. Israel's existence today is a testament of God's sovereignty and his faithfulness, in spite of the many genocide attempts since the early days of Esther. Today, you, if you go to Kayak, Expedia, or your favorite travel app, you can't buy a plane ticket and go to Sodom and Gomorrah or any city of the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Philistines, the Babylonians, even Roman Empire. But if you go to Airbnb, you can book a hotel in Israel. It all goes to show you that they exist right now, and that's not an accident. That is because God is sovereign, and God is preserving them because he is not done yet with his people. It is a testament of his sovereignty and his faithfulness. And that's what Romans 11, chapter 11, verses 25 to 36 is all about. In our passage for today, we find three lessons of God's salvation plan for Israel that assure us, Gentile believers, we are the Gentile believers, that it assures us of his sovereignty and faithfulness in his word. So my next, my first point is that, can I have the next slide, please? Thank you. God's mystery is revealed through Israel's future salvation. God's mystery is revealed through Israel's future salvation. In verse 25, let's read verse 25 to 27. Can I have the next slide, please? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. What Paul is saying here is that we will never figure things out on our own. We cannot be wise in our own eyes. We need to have a humble heart when it comes to this kind of passage. God is the infinite genius who has a master plan for human history. He is sovereign. 
and he does what he pleases. And God has a mystery plan based on this verse. When we hear the word mystery, what comes to our mind? Maybe you think about a puzzle, a riddle, or a crime scene that needs to be solved. But in the Bible, it means something different. Mystery is not something like that. Mystery in the Bible, it means that something is concealed, something is hidden, and now made known. It's like pulling out a canvas, pulling down a canvas uh, to unveil a statue. Now, two weeks ago, the statue of Kobe Bryant was hidden until they pulled down that canvas to reveal that one of the most iconic poses in NBA, that he is one of the greatest players who ever played the the game. And Paul here, he was unveiling the mystery. Now, here's the mystery. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentile has come in. All Israel will be saved in the future. Yes, Israel is an apostate right now. They have rejected Christ. But that is only temporary. And how do we know this? Paul makes his case that God has not forgotten his covenant people because he made a promise to them. And one of the promises can be found in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Verse 33, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. There will be an extraordinary conversion of ethnic Israel in the future. All Israel means Israel as a nation will be saved in the last days. And God is the sovereign ruler who moves history. And we see that in the future. We read in the future. We read in Revelation chapter 7, verses 4 to 8. Can I have the next slide, please? Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter 7, verses 4 to 8. And I heard the number of the sealed 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, and 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, and so on and so on, 12,000 from each tribe. Then you go to the next verse. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. 
and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What an amazing passage about the second coming of our Savior. What a picture of salvation for the Jews and Gentiles, worshiping together, crying out, Salvation belongs to God. Salvation is the forgiveness and the removal of sin. It's the eradication of what separates fallen people like you and me from our holy God. The power of salvation is by God's grace through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. And as mentioned in Romans eleven twenty six, Christ is the Deliverer, the Redeemer, who will remove our ungodliness and will take away our sin. Do we have the humility in recognizing that salvation belongs to God? He will save those he wants to save. But God didn't choose people randomly in the multitude. God didn't choose you randomly. God chose you with a purpose if you are a believer. Similarly, God didn't choose Israel randomly. Israel has a purpose. They are like a unique key that will be inserted in a keyhole to unlock the salvation plan of God. And today, Israel is an apostate rejecting our Messiah. But God has a purpose for that, which leads us to our next point. God's purpose for Israel and the Gentiles is fulfilled, fulfilled through his gospel. In verses 28 to 32, God's purpose for Israel and the Gentiles is fulfilled through his gospel. Next slide, please. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Israel's rejection of the Messiah is not only partial, it's not only passing, but also purposeful. God temporarily set aside his chosen people in order to bring salvation to the Gentiles. Right? Israel's rejection of the Messiah means salvation is now offered to the Gentiles, to the whole world. And Paul illustrated this in Romans chapter 11, verse 16, about grafting an olive tree branch, right? Next slide, please. There's the natural olive tree whose root is a divine blessing of a relationship with God by faith. So when we talk about the Jewish roots, we're talking about the forefathers, the beloved fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The roots of this great tree is the roots of faith. And then the branches are Israel. But Israel were broken off because of their unbelief. 
And in place of the unbelieving branches of Israel was the wild olive branch. That is us, the believing Gentiles, who were grafted into the natural olive tree. We, believing Gentiles, are blessed by God because we are now partakers of that blessing of the gospel. We were lost, but found. We were not only found, we were grafted in to this salvation. In a similar way, Paul says that the Jewish branch that was broken off and that is lying on the ground is not without hope. Normal branches that would be off, that are broken off, they would dry up and they would die. But God is able to miraculously graft them back, graft them back into their own olive tree, tree through the gospel. Because nothing is impossible for God. Only God can do this. This is God's work. For the gospel is the power of God for salvation, for those who believe, for both Jews and Gentiles. Now, you, may, you might ask, why did God plan history this way? Why did God do it this way? That's a fair question. Uh, John Piper puts it this way. God's aim is to stop the mouth of human pride and magnify the greatness of his absolutely free mercy. You see, the Jews, when you read scripture, right, they looked down on Gentiles. They were proud, right? They thought, hmm, we are God's chosen people, right? It took a while for the apostle Peter, right, to go to Cornelius' house, right? So it so for, for the Jews, they boasted over Gentiles. So God humbled them by making their disobedience the means of Gentile salvation. And more than that, he humbled them by making their own salvation the fruit of Gentile salvation. By the mercy shown to the Gentiles, they received mercy. And Jewish boasting is ended. Now, what about us Gentiles? We are prone to boast, boast over the broken off branches or to boast over the broken off branches of Israel. And we may brag about that their disobedience was for our mercy. Well, that's partly true. But then God stops our mouth by making our mercy a means of theirs and our salvation a stepping stone to theirs. And all Gentile boasting is ended. So what is left when all this boasting is removed? Mercy. Mercy on all. That is the great fullness of mercy to the Gentiles and great fullness of mercy to Israel. Next slide, please. You see, in Romans 9.16, it says here, So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And we see here in Romans eleven thirty two, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he might that he may have mercy on all, right? Mercy on all. Charles Spurgeon said this God's mercy is so great that you may sooner drain the sea of its water or deprive the sun of its light 
or make space too narrow than diminish the great mercy of God. You see, God will extend His mercy to the unbelieving Jews the same way He extended it to us for unbelieving Gentiles. Salvation flows from God's mercy. Salvation flows from God's mercy. And our salvation is a, is a means to an end and not the end itself. And this leads us to our third and final point. God's glory is the end goal of the believer's salvation. God's glory is the end goal of the believer's salvation. Let's read verses 33 to 35. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? For who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The majesty, the greatness, the wisdom of God's salvation plan caused Paul to burst out in praise. Paul couldn't contain himself. He bursts out in a doxology of praise to our sovereign and faithful God. And this is the pinnacle of Romans. Romans, not chapter 11, but from verses 1 to 11. This is the summit. This focuses on the supreme purpose of everything of what God does. It is to glorify himself. The purpose of salvation is for God's glory. Salvation is not man-centered. Salvation is God-centered. God is the accomplisher of all salvation. God is the aim. God is the goal of all salvation. The spotlight is on him and not on us. Salvation belongs to God and not to man. It's his divine choice that saves a person. Israel's unbelief is a proof of man's depravity that no one chooses God because of sin. It's God who chooses to save both Gentile and Jew through the gospel. God is the sustainer. God is the source. God is the rightful end of everything that exists. And therefore, all glory belongs to God. And as we reflect upon the greatness of the gospel in our life, how do we respond in worship and adoration of the greatness of our Lord and Savior? When was the last time you worshipped God in all? Do you have a high view of God that leads to glorifying Him? Now, let's go to the application. Let's connect the dots on how we can apply this to our own life. Because the temptation for this passage, like, yeah, I know this already. I know Israel will be saved. But let's connect it to our own life. Let's do the application. And you know what? I have 20 applications. We could go on for an hour. But... I choose to have mercy. So I'll only give you three. Okay. First one, rest. Rest. 
Do our hearts rest in God's sovereignty and faithfulness? Do our hearts rest in God's sovereignty and faithfulness? What gives you confidence in life? What is your hope? Do we still strive like the unbelievers who don't know God as Abba Father, as if their tomorrow solely depends on them? If God can save Israel, which is humanly impossible, then we can trust and rest in God's sovereignty and His faithfulness. Rest in the fact that God is sovereign over human history. While He's sovereignly directing you know, while he's sovereignly directing all human events to their appointed end, he fulfills, he fulfills his promises to their appointed time. The fulfillment of God's promise is tied to his character that he cannot lie. We can trust his word. If God is a promise-keeping God, then why do we worry about our future? God has promised that he will take care of us. God loves us. God cares for us. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Put your hope in God. Rest in his sovereignty and in his faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, what makes you anxious? What are your worries in life? Our Heavenly Father is the author of our life. He is the author of our salvation, and He knows our needs far better than we do. If we can trust God with our eternity, if we profess, right? If we are professing believers, if we can trust God with our eternity, with things unseen, then how much more with the temporal things of earth? So brothers and sisters, let's rest. Let's rest in the sovereignty let our hearts rest in God's faithfulness and His sovereignty. That's the first application. Second application. Realize. Do we realize that salvation belongs to God? Do we realize that salvation belongs to our Lord? We need to realize that salvation belongs to God because every spiritual birth is a divine miracle. God is active and man is passive. God is the seeker, not man. And we've seen that in Romans 1 to 2. No one seeks God. We've learned in Romans that, yeah, no one seeks God. God is a seeker and God is the one who draws people to himself so that we will seek the Lord. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. The initiator of all seeking is God. And God is the one who cuts off the branch. And God is the one who grafts in the branch. So we need to realize from this passage that if you are a Christian today, it is because God pursued you. Because God sought you. God grafted you into the place of blessing. And you are now in union and communion with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Realizing that salvation belongs to God will mold, will guide, will shape 
how we share the gospel to others. We will not feel pressured that as if it's up to our skill or our wit that this person will accept Christ. We won't feel pressure because we have to trust God, right? And also, we will not give up. We will not give up sharing the gospel because we know salvation belongs to God. Our calling as believers is to be faithful. Faithful. Maybe you have a loved one who is not saved. There is still hope while he or she is alive. There is still hope. And all the more that we should be praying and seeking God, asking, Lord, please save my loved one. Save my dad. Save my mom. Save my children. May my children know Christ. Realize that salvation belongs to God. And last, but not the least, do we rejoice in our salvation? Do we rejoice in the good news of Christ? It's easy to rejoice with the earthly good news in our life. Maybe you got the news that you got accepted to the college that you want. Maybe you got the good news that the company that you want to work for gave you a job offer. And maybe if you are a parent wanting to have a baby, you had maybe you have the good news of like, whoa, positive test result from the pregnancy test, right? Those are, things are good. And those things are, we should rejoice with the earthly things. But it should not surpass rejoicing in the good news. Do we rejoice in the good news of Christ? If you're a believer, God's God has chosen you. So therefore, we should rejoice. Rejoice for God has taken away our sins because of Christ. Rejoice because God has grafted you in his place of blessing. Do our loved ones see that our joy is in our salvation, that our joy is tied to Christ? Or do they see more often that our joy is tied to the temporal things of this world? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones asked his congregation. He said this, Is the good news of Jesus Christ the greatest, biggest, and best news of your life? Is the good news of Jesus Christ the biggest, the greatest, and the best news of your life? If the gospel is, is not the greatest good news that has ever come to you. It may be due to the fact that you have an inadequate sense of sin and an inadequate realization of your own sinfulness. He, and Dr. Lloyd-Jones says this, because people who think that they're, all, uh, that they're all right, right, people who think that they're all right without the Savior, without God, living in self-sufficiency, or perhaps they think they're good people, the gospel is not good news to them. They've never seen any need for help, and therefore they aren't thrilled about it, and they don't see how wonderful it is. And, and he makes this statement, Dr. Jones says, an, in, an in inadequate understanding of our sinfulness is probably 
the greatest single cause of failure to rejoice in the Lord always and to realize that Christ's gospel is the greatest good news that the world has ever received. Let me repeat that. And in adequate understanding of our sinfulness is probably the greatest single cause of failure to rejoice in the Lord always and to realize that Christ's gospel is the greatest good news that the world has ever received. If we've been saved from God's wrath, if we have received God's mercy, then this should cause us to rejoice and to live for His glory. And this reminds me about a man I met a year ago. Uh, This man was an alcoholic until he became a believer. And he was telling me that his marriage almost fell apart. His wife almost left him. And we both have sons. Uh, Our sons are about the same age. And he told me, you know, JC, I, I named my firstborn son after my favorite whiskey. Okay. I named my son after my favorite whiskey. And then I asked him, what did God do to save you? And he said, God broke me. God broke me. And he said this, the book of Romans hit him like a brick. So the the day that he got saved, he was reading the book of Romans. And the book of Romans opened his eyes to see his own depravity, to see his own sinfulness. He realized he was headed for destruction. It was destroying his relationships with his loved ones. He realized salvation belongs to God. He needed a Savior. He repented of his sins and came to faith in Christ. His wife also became a believer, and both of them are attending a church right now. And praise God for that. He got saved two to three years ago. And around that time, his youngest son was also born. And guess what? He named his youngest son. He named his youngest son Roman. Roman. To remind him of the great mercy and the great power of the gospel that saved him. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And as I was preparing this message, I became teary-eyed and I asked God, Lord, why me? Why did you choose me? Because we could ask, why did you choose Israel? Well, my seminary professor said, well, it's the same reason why he chose you, right? It's part of God's plan. And we may not fully understand it, but we have to trust in his sovereign plan. We can trust in his sovereign plan. 
And like Paul, when we realize the amazing grace, the amazing gospel of Christ, we'll burst out in praise if we look at our salvation by remembering that the King of Kings left his throne, wore the crown of thorns, died on the cross to bear all our sins because of his great love and mercy for us. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. Our chief end is to glorify God and then enjoy him forever. And to him be the honor and glory and praise forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your great mercy and grace that we're part of your family. Oh Lord, we pray for Israel. Have mercy on them. We wait for their salvation. And we also pray for the salvation of our loved ones, of our co-workers. Lord, help us to be salt and light, um, to be a gospel light to them. We ask for your spirit to work in our hearts so that our hearts would rest in your sovereignty and your faithfulness. Oh Lord, we need you. We thank you for the good news that we have in Christ. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.